Well, good morning, everyone. As we enter a time of worship, let us turn our eyes to Jesus. He is the promise maker and the promise keeper, and we can put our full trust in him. His faithfulness is something we can rest in. So let's speak these words from Revelation 22 together as we look forward to the promise of his return. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now we turn to our scripture reading. And for our scripture reading this morning, Eugene has chosen 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Well, brothers and sisters, I have some good news for you. We have arrived at our final series in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. So congratulations to all of you. What was originally planned as a four-week <laughs> series has ballooned into 19 sermons, and by the end of my <laughs> next few, we'll have 24 sermons <laughs> in this series. Of course, you can catch up on all of them on our website if you'd like, uh, but um, I'd love to just recap for all of us here a little bit of where we've been. Uh, it's been a little bit of time since we were last in Colossians, so hopefully this will jog your memory. Our journey began with Paul's meditation on the glory of Christ in chapter one. Christ is the one through whom all things were created and hold together. And having died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins, Christ is also the one through whom all things will be reconciled to God. Considering Christ's glory, Paul asserted his supremacy in chapter two. He is the one who offers us what human rituals and traditions could never earn, eternal relationship with God. And Paul reminded us at the beginning of chapter three that this relationship with God will only deepen when Christ returns. After dying for our sins, Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. From there, he rules all reality and awaits the God's command to return and to bring us to his eternal kingdom. The reign and return of Christ has implications for how we live in the present, and Paul walked through many of them through the rest of chapter three. Christ's reign and return changes how we see ourselves and as a result, how we behave. It also changes how we participate in the community of believers and how we relate to our families, whether biological or chosen. And of course, the implications reach even further. 
As we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul spent the remainder of the letter calling the Colossian believers to consider how the reign and return of Christ should change how they engage with the world beyond their community and households. So for our final five sermons in Colossians, we will consider the same things. And we'll start with the first place many of us think of when we think of the world beyond our community and households, the world out there. And that is our places of work. Now I know work isn't everyone's favorite topic to think about on a Sunday morning. I don't mean to trigger anybody's Sunday scaries early, but it's unavoidable. Work still defines so much of our lives. Last March at the Brookings Institution, using data from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, researchers demonstrated that although the average work week in America is now shorter than it was pre-pandemic, the difference amounts to just over half an hour per week. At 36.9 hours per week, Americans are still spending a third of each day working, which of course contradicts the 130-year-old narrative that nobody wants to work anymore. The truth is that we do want to work, or rather we know we need to work, and we realize this at a young age. The New York Times recently published an installment of their America in Focus series in which 12, 11 to 14 year olds were invited to share a little bit about their lives. At one point, the interviewers asked the children to share what they think they might want to do when they grow up. Kira, age 14, replied, I'd like to maybe have a job that supports me financially and maybe have a little bit of extra money and live with my best friend. Nate, also 14, said, I just want a nice job with a nice amount of money and a nice car and a nice house and stuff like that. Maybe a nice thesaurus would also help. Nice answers though, overall, right? But things took a bit of a turn when the interviewers asked, what makes you nervous or scared about getting older? Jillian, 14, answered, I'm scared about finances. You have to pay for college and then a house. There's just a lot of expenses. Winter, also 14, added, I'm scared of the possibility of losing my job and not having a stable income to get a house or apartment to live in. Matthew 13 confessed, I'm scared of failing in whatever my job is and not having money. And Andrew, only 11 years old, shared, I'm scared of getting too caught up in work and separating from people that I care about. Given these replies, it's unsurprising that when asked if you could wave a magic wand and turn into an adult, would you? 10 out of the 12 replied that they would not. If the attitudes of these kids are at all reflective of how youth more broadly view work, then we have a problem. Because every indicator suggests that our young people today will one day end up working just as much as previous generations, and their motivation will be to survive. It will be to survive a competitive, zero-sum world defined by scarcity. And just like many of the adults before and around them, they will likely conclude, work is my source of life. The purpose of work is to meet my needs. That's what it's for. That's what I can rely on it to do. 
Now, where does this mindset come from? Where did these 11 to 14-year-olds learn to think of work in this way? Well, perhaps we can hear in these kids' responses the anxieties of the adults in their lives. And maybe we can even hear our own, despite the fact that we identify as believers in Christ. Because this is what kids do. They hear us, and they see us, and they learn from our collective, sometimes unspoken, testimony concerning the purpose of work. And if our testimony is indistinguishable from the world's testimony on this topic, then they will learn just as much in here as they will out there that the purpose of work is to save us from bills and homelessness, to guarantee our survival, and if we're lucky, to get us a nice car and a nice house and stuff like that. But Paul invited the Colossian believers to rethink their work. He challenged them to write a different testimony with their lives. And we find this invitation and challenge in our passage today, Colossians 3, 22 to 41. These verses contain the final part of Paul's take on the Aristotelian household code. They cover the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, you may think it's a bit cheeky of me to use a passage about slaves and masters to talk about our work, but I assure you that there are parallels worth considering. And those parallels exist because slavery in the Roman Empire in the first century was quite different from the chattel slavery once practiced in America. Chattel is a legal term for property. It points to the defining characteristic of American slavery practiced in the 18th and 19th centuries, the legal ownership of a fellow human being. In America, slaves were considered by law to be their master's permanent personal property. There was no expiration date for this ownership. The slave would never again be their own person, but would remain their master's and his heir's possession forever. And as we all know, this permanence was reinforced by the decision, the choice to define slave status according to race. Being black was enough to warrant enslavement. And the association of slavery with skin color meant that even if a slave were to manage to win their freedom somehow, former slaves would bear the stigma of subhumanity for the rest of their lives. But what about slavery in the Roman Empire? In some ways, it was not much better. But during the time of Christ, Paul, and the Colossian church, there were some significant differences. Let's just consider two of them. First, though chattel slavery did exist in the empire, many slaves were only slaves temporarily. Individuals and even families sometimes chose to enter into slave contracts with masters to work off their debts and to make some money. People could sell their time and their labor to estates or to the government for various projects and initiatives. Skilled workers could often could negotiate these contracts and attain positions of authority within an estate. And depending on their master's status, a slave could even end up wielding considerable power and influence, not only within their households, but also in society at large. By the first century, many slaves were even given legal protections, such as the right to sue their masters for breach of contact, contract, or once they won their freedom to attain citizenship. The second major difference is that Roman slavery was not defined typically according to race. 
Many slaves were formerly prisoners of war or born into enslaved families, but there wasn't a concerted effort to enslave people simply on account of their complexion. This allowed freed slaves to assimilate back into society after they had ended their slave contracts or accrued enough wealth to purchase their freedom. And so you even saw people entering into slave contracts for the sake of making some money to fund business ventures once their terms were complete. These two differences with American chattel slavery contributed to the perhaps surprising reality that upwards of 90% of the population across the Roman Empire had either been slaves at some point in their lives or had descended from slaves. Slavery, then, had a very different place in the culture of Paul's day than it has had in American history. Perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised then to find principles in our passage that we can apply to our work today. But before we get into those principles, we have to address a, 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 at least one more question. Some of us might be wondering, why does our passage, Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1, why does this passage addressing slaves and masters even exist? Why didn't the Bible simply abolish slavery outright? Well, this question deserves its own series of sermons, but allow me to share a brief response, hopefully to tide us over. When I was pastoring a youth group in the Boston area, one of our volunteers offered this to our middle schoolers. Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. I thought that was very cute at the time, but it's actually stuck with me over the years because there's a surprising amount of depth to this acronym. It's true. The Bible does not offer us solutions to every conceivable problem. Not explicitly, at least. Its instructions are basic. They are sufficient for salvation, but they are not exhaustive for making every decision for us. There's an inherent flexibility to the text that gives us principles that we are to learn to apply in whatever situations come up over the course of human history. And these basic instructions have one primary purpose. It is to show us the way home to God. The Bible is not a set of instructions for building a utopia here on earth. Though we are called to transform our communities through neighborly love that previews the coming kingdom of God, our goal is not to replace the kingdom of God with one of our own making. No, the biblical authors, and perhaps Paul most explicitly, pragmatically taught their churches how to live within this broken world as signposts pointing to the world to come. And we saw this approach in the previous verses of Colossians, where Paul took the framework of the Aristotelian household code and replaced its patriarchal content with Christ-centered agape love. This was Paul's strategy. Take the broken systems of this world, and if we can't repair them from the outside, then redefine them from the inside. And that included the slave-master relationship. Just as he did with the wife-husband relationship and with the child-parent relationship, Paul redefined the slave-master relationship of first-century Rome around the reality of Christ's reign and return. Let's look at Paul's command to the slaves among the Colossian believers. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. This is the same command Paul gave to children with respect to their parents. Obey them in everything. Believing slaves' default behavior was to be compliant with their master's commands. 
as defined by their contracts. Paul expanded on this command in verse 22. Do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart. Paul commanded believing slaves not to work only to curry favor with their master in the hope that their favor would become favoritism when payday arrived. No, believing slaves were to work with integrity and honesty, with sincerity of heart. But why should they? Why should they? The final phrase of verse 22 reveals the reason. Do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. It's interesting. Let's continue to verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Why should believing slaves work with wholehearted sincerity? Because Christ had become their Lord, their true master, and his lordship superseded the authority of their earthly human masters. Whatever tasks they were given to do, believing slaves were to obey their human masters as acts of service, not to them, but to Christ. And Christ promised to reward their obedience to him when he returns. Verse 24, you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Christ has secured a place in the coming kingdom of God for the slaves among the Colossian believers. When Christ returns, they will receive this inheritance on account of their faith in Christ as expressed in obedience to their human masters. Christ will honor and reward their work for them as if it was service to him. Now, in bringing Christ into the slave-master relationship, Paul was not intending for believing slaves to equate their human masters with Christ. No. Paul challenged believing slaves to look past, to look beyond their earthly human masters to Christ. As Paul reminded them at the end of verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Christ is the true master served by every believing slave. Though the world may see things differently, in truth they were no longer slaves to humans, but servants of Christ. Now this phrase carries an imperatival force. It could also have been rendered, continue serving the Lord Christ. Not only does a reward await those who do, but so do just consequences for those who do not. Verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. If Christ is their true master, then it is only right for him to, be both, uh, to both reward the faithful as well as to repay those who demonstrate faithlessness by working insincerely, unethically, and manipulatively. And with that warning still ringing, Paul turned to believing masters. Colossians 4.1, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. In Roman slavery, masters were responsible for providing for their slaves' needs in addition to the pay that they had contractually agreed upon. So Paul commanded believing masters to do so fairly and without favoritism, being careful not to violate the needs and rights of their slaves. And you can, again, imagine the masters among the Colossian believers asking, why? Why couldn't they treat their slaves however they wanted? Why couldn't they just use them, as Aristotle put it, as living tools, however they chose? Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. 
Just as Paul redefined believing slaves' slaves' identities around Christ, so Paul redefined believing masters' status before Christ. You know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, you are also a servant of Christ. You are also a slave of Christ. Paul demolished any notion of superiority held by the masters among the Colossian believers. I don't care what the world thinks of you, he said. I don't care what it says on your business card. I don't care how many people you have working for you. You are just as much of a servant, just as much of a slave of Christ as the believing slaves under your temporary, fleeting, earthly, human authority. The little Paul wrote to the masters among the Colossian believers said quite a lot. But does what Paul wrote say much to us today? Yes, it does. And perhaps you are already hearing what God is saying to us through these commands. I, for my part, hear at least two ways we can apply this passage to ourselves today. First, you are not your work. Very simple, straightforward, but difficult. You are not your work. Paul redefined the identities of both believing slaves and believing masters around Christ. For Paul, socioeconomic status, life situation, employment and occupation, or unemployment, none of this had any bearing on a person's true identity. As he put it in Colossians 3.11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free but Christ is all and is in all. This Christ-centered understanding of self is fully on display in our passage, but these two passages are far from the only places we see it. Hear Paul's encouragement in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 22. Were you a slave when you were called? Were you a slave when you became a follower of Christ? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. If the one who was a slave when, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You may think that Paul is speaking out of both sides of his mouth there. He's not really, it's hard to pin down what he's saying, but what he's saying is the point is that our identity revolves around Christ. Now, to be sure, had Paul been writing to a gathering of believing slaves in 19th century America, I imagine Paul would have had something different to say. But given the nature of slavery in first century Rome, Paul counseled the slaves among the Corinthian believers not to be discouraged by their present temporary circumstances. Don't let it trouble you, he said. But how could they not? Paul, how could we not? Even considering the difference between Roman slavery and American chattel slavery, how could believing slaves not be troubled by their situation, by their lowly status? How could they withstand the contempt they received? How could they endure the long hours of hard work? How could they not let their place in society bother them? Because they had a better place to ground their identities. Because they had served a greater master and were members of a greater household. 
because they served a greater estate and awaited a greater inheritance, an inheritance they will one day receive, not as slaves or as contracted employees, but as sons and daughters of God the Father, as heirs alongside Christ. The Holy Spirit, crying Abba Father from the bottoms of their hearts, assured them that they were nothing less than the children of the King. By the same token, on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, how could the masters among the Corinthian believers boast in their status? They might have wealth and power and status in this world, but this world is set to expire, and wealth and power and status will expire along with it. So what pride could there be taken in being a master other than in the Christ-honoring, faithful management of care of and care for those in your temporary care? As James, the brother of Jesus, put it in James 1, 9 through 11, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business." Brothers and sisters, neither be troubled by nor boast in the temporary status and the temporary work Christ has given you temporarily to do. Whether you are paid by the hour or assigned a salary, whether you work with your hands or with computers, whether you have degrees or studied in the school of hard knocks, whether you have a job or not, be neither troubled nor boastful. You are not your job description. You are not your title. You are not the name on your acceptance letter or offer sheet or resume. You are not your account balance. You belong to Christ. He is your true master. Again, hear Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian believers. What I mean is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is what we call today holding things loosely. It's difficult to resist the temptation to identify ourselves with our work. I understand that. I've wrestled for years with what it means to have the word pastor in front of my name. I love that at PBCC, we just call each other by our names. That title has weighed on me, it's confused me, and it's twisted me. And sometimes I don't know what to do with it. Sometimes I'd rather go back to some previous titles I've had. Team member at Target. Third key at GameStop. Knife guy at Stevens Creek Surplus. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, to Christ I am more than my title. To Christ I am brother. To the Spirit I am friend. And to the Father I am child. Brothers and sisters, you too are sons and daughters and friends of God. Whatever title the world foists on you, whatever title is at the end of your pay stub. So do not let your work tell you who you are. 
but return to this truth and let it define how you understand your work and how you do it. And that brings us to the second application I hear in our text this morning. Do your work, whatever it is, as if for Christ. Working as if for Christ means working with integrity. It means working with sincerity, not manipulatively. With all your heart, not half-heartedly. With rightness and fairness, not fickleness and inconsistency. But the problem with sincerity, let's be honest, the problem with sincerity and wholeheartedness and rightness and fairness, the problem with these things is that they don't always get rewarded in our workplaces, do they? There are times when good work is recognized and given its due, many times even, by the grace of God, but not always, not every time. And it isn't always noticed when we do less than good work, is it? It certainly rarely seems to be noticed when it's our coworker doing less than good work. The truth is that good work isn't always rewarded the way it should be. It's insincerity, half-heartedness, manipulation, playing on others' favoritism. These can be quite effective at securing what we want to get out of our work. And that's often what it comes down to, isn't it? Security, sufficiency. Provision. Sometimes it feels like all that matters is attaining these things. And in this broken world, sometimes attaining these things is more easily done if we cross some ethical lines, if we cut some corners, if we compromise in some hard-to-notice ways. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, that Christ notices. And I would suggest that he is more concerned with the unbelief motivating lapses in integrity than with the lapse itself. Brothers and sisters, working with integrity, especially when it goes unnoticed, is an act of faith. Faith in Christ's faithfulness to us. Faith that he will provide for us better than we could with less scrupulous means. It is an act of faith to work not out of self-reliant survivalism, that robs us of our integrity, but out of security in Christ's faithfulness that gives purpose to what we're doing. This was a difficult lesson the pandemic taught me, as I'm sure it taught many of us. During much of the pandemic, I worked for a small business. Despite offering an essential service, the lockdown gutted our customer base. They dwindled until the manager simply could not justify scheduling me and my coworkers for our regular shifts. Eventually, our manager had to start letting some of us go, and I wasn't sure if I'd be next. One afternoon, I called my dad, as sons sometimes do, and I started venting to him. Pent-up anger and rage flowed out of me until I was literally shouting at the top of my lungs inside my car. Underneath all that anger and rage was more fear and anxiety than I realized were actually there. I was so scared that I was going to lose my job and that my wife and I would be unable to feed and house our family, which had just grown by one Theodore. (laughs) After patiently listening to me for a good while, my dad finally asked me in Korean, Eugene, who is your Lord? And I was livid. Not the time, Dad. (laughs) But he pressed, and so I answered, Jesus. Then my dad asked me, why are you so scared then? I didn't get the connection at first because I didn't really understand the Korean word that my dad was using for Lord. I I understood it in one dimension, but I didn't understand the full meaning of it. 
When he realized my misunderstanding, he explained, Eugene, that word I used for Lord, in Korean, it also implies responsibility. Lordship implies responsibility. Because Jesus is your Lord, Eugene, he is also responsible for your needs. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we forget that having authority implies taking responsibility. And that if someone is unwilling to do the latter, then they are undeserving of the former. Christ has authority over us, and he deserves that authority not only because of who he is, but because of his commitment to take responsibility for his people, a commitment that he proved on the cross. Christ is responsible for you and for me, and like a faithful master, he shows no favoritism, but gives to each of us exactly what we need. When we stand on that truth, it changes the way that we work. Instead of seeing our work as the source of provision, we recognize it as just the means that God is using temporarily to meet our needs. Instead of scheming and manipulating or overworking and overextending, we are liberated by Christ to work with integrity and to work with honesty, to work with sincerity, to work within the boundaries that are right for us, to work as if the way we worked was itself an offering to Christ and then to rest from work, trusting that Christ truly has responsibility over us. Self-reliant survivalism robs us of integrity, but faith in Christ's responsibility over us as our true master means we can work creatively and joyfully and healthily as a worshipful end in itself. This is a perspective none of those kids in the New York Times interview knew. But it is a perspective one of our own youth discovered for himself a few weeks ago. After our youth group returned from building a house for a family in Mexico, one of our members, Peter, 18, shared about his experience. The trip was long hours of hard work, but our work had purpose, and our purpose became our joy. Brothers and sisters, can we say this about our work? that our work has purpose and that purpose brings us joy. It can be difficult to find purpose in the content of our work. It is far easier to see it simply as a means of survival, as a means to comfort, as a means to the nice car and the nice house and the other nice stuff. But finding purpose in our work might be as simple as looking up into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ looking into his face and seeing his delight in our trust and obedience, looking into his face and remembering that more than the work itself, the way we do it, the way we work with integrity and honesty and faith, that this matters to Christ, that to work for him as we depend on him, that this pleases Christ. And this purpose unlocks the other purposes for why we work, to love our neighbors, to have something to share with others, to create a preview of the coming kingdom right here on earth. Could we work for our managers and our bosses and our companies and our organizations or for our families and our children and our parents or for those we manage and those we oversee and those we employ? Could we work for all these people and in all these places to the honor of Christ, whether we are mowing lawns or conducting a meeting or writing papers or tending patients or buying groceries or cleaning toilets or signing contracts or preaching a sermon, could his pleasure over us. 
become the joyful purpose of our work. Whatever the results, whatever the stigma, however the way the world values those things, could the joy of the Lord be our joyful purpose? Long hours of hard work, but our work had purpose, and our purpose became our joy. Would you all stand with me as we recite this portion from the Heidelberg Catechism? The lyrics will be on screen. Let's read together. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Receive now this benediction. As you go from this place out into your various spaces of work, may you know the fellowship of the Lord who became a carpenter, who knew the roughness of wood and the hardness of nails long before he mounted the cross, who understood the value and the way to honor God in the work that he did before the work that he did. May you know fellowship with this Lord and may he fill your heart with all his pleasure. Amen. Be well.